Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, I don't know if you're aware, but you happen to be recording a podcast with the god of playing magic on your phone after my trip to New York this week. My lord, it's so good to see you. <laughs> so good to have you with us. I uh, just, could you imagine Ben Warney from two years ago playing magic on his phone? Like, first of all, your phone was from the Stone Age. <laughs> Second of all, I don't think we had a mobile client. And now you just had what, like a 15-hour bus ride and just drafts all the way down. Please, sir. It was scheduled to be 15 hours. On the way there, we broke down in four hours of stopped traffic due to Rex. So it was about 20 hours on the way there. Oh, my gosh. On the way back, we had three coach buses. One of our coach buses had a critical computer malfunction and just like broke. <laughs> on the side of the road. So we had to take everyone off of the third coach bus, smash them onto the first two coach buses over capacity, and then drive another 15 hours after that with people from three coach buses smashed onto two. It was the worst, but I had lots of time <laughs> to play magic <laughs> on my phone. And I feel very comfortable. And it was actually like kind of nice to just be able to play magic on my phone. I, that bus ride would have been miserable if I had not had arena on my phone. Yeah. And, and pretty stable. Like, did you ever like, you know, go into a dead zone and lose connection or anything? No, it dropped some. I was actually totally crushing people. I mean, it's not on 17 <laughs> lands. So does it really count? But if I hadn't been dropping games, I think I would have been in the top 50 mythic. I mean, as it was, I was in the top 100 mythic, like with several dropped games, disconnected losses, but I was on an absolute tear. I feel like I'm really in the groove for this format. All right, sweet. Wait, I thought you were you were like, I'm I'm done with best of one. <laughs> this is your this is what I have to deal with, folks. I have to deal with Ben making these just wild statements and then <laughs> going back on them a day later. So were you doing best of one because it was mobile or best of one because you stopped hating it? What happened? No, best of one because I have the world's sweetest best of three draft deck and I need to stream it. I couldn't bring myself to pilot more of it without the world watching. I drafted a double ether flux over the top. Wait, whatever the one drop blue. No, it's the same one. I only played okay. one round and then saved it. I stopped all those it was screenshots you sent me were from one match. <laughs> yeah, it was so beautiful. That's amazing. Okay. All right. Thank you. Well, uh, we, we, we appreciate the sacrifice you've made to make sure that that deck is public. Yeah. And I also would be remiss if I did not shout out one of our patrons, Jeff, who is in New York. And you'll appreciate how this trip started, I think. So he was going to pick me up. Uh, when we got to New York and the first thing we were going to do was go out to Liberty Island. And so like the buses drop us off and I text him and I'm like, Hey, we're here. And he's like, Hey, looking for the buses. Don't see you. Where are you at? Uh -oh. Take a picture of where you are. And so I took a picture and he was like, dude, you're in New Jersey. <laughs> so we were on the New Jersey <laughs> side of the island. So I had to like Uber over to New York and he showed me around downtown New York. We hung out, had some good food. I tried sushi for the first time and wait for it. I liked it. I love that. Love to hear that. So huge thank you to Jeff for showing me around New York. It was an awesome time and great to meet you and your family. Oh my gosh. What a what a wholesome, I, I would expect nothing less from you. What a wholesome story for Thanksgiving week slash weekend. Um, shout out to Jeff. Shout out to our patrons in general, as we'll talk about in just a second. And shout out to you. You know, so you don't have, I feel like you don't have a uh, I don't know. You're not a picky eater. You're not an adventurous eater. But like the things you try, you like. I generally do. I probably should try more things. But literally, like that was my Midwestern hospitality. If he hadn't mm. have ordered it, like he was like, you're going to try sushi. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and he ordered it. And then I was like, mm, I really don't want to do this in my head. He was like, all right, try some. And I was like, okay. Like I just Midwestern hospitality. You can't say no to something like that. Then I tried it. And it was great. Wow. Love to see it. All right. Sweet. And we got to talk a, lot, a little bit about magic. How, how late were you up last night trying to qualify for day two? A reasonable midnight. So I tried <laughs> okay. in the morning, two bullets, 
and lost two times in my first run to Titania's Command. One time in my second run to Titania's Command. The other loss in my first run was to Worm Coil Engine. So I was very frustrated with the sealed format. Had some medium pools um, and then got the queue finally with a blue-white Soldier's Precon, leaving Tyrant of Care Ridges in the sideboard. Had to, had to consult you about that one, but we both came to the same decision. Yeah, yeah, that deck looked great as I was like nodding off checking discord on my phone ben was like what about this deck i was like all right i have to look <laughs> and i have to look and it did look good to me and 15 lands worked out for you 15 lands worked out great all right love to see it yeah i uh i won the lottery yesterday i got a sweet pretty straightforward white black oops all bombs and removal and good fixing went 7-0 didn't have to stress about it which is fine i feel like i'm due a little bit from still kind of um have ptsd from the dmu arena open where i fired like eight bullets and just wasted a whole Saturday to queue for day two and then whatever, go out in <laughs> round one or round two. But I'm excited today. We're, we're recording before uh, we dive into day two, the draft. I'm excited now that you have a loss to give and hoping to be able to get uh, get some dollar dollar bills sent my way from Wizards with that sweet cash in the second draft. Yeah, for sure. This is definitely the most magic I have played heading into yeah. the opens. Not close. <laughs> I love to see that. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking about some archetypes. We're going to break down three decks. You know, last week we said it's a Jund format and we're just living in it. And I think I still feel that way myself. I still have black, red, and green at the top of the color power rankings. I think green has dropped for some in the general world. I haven't really talked to you very much other than, you know, seeing your sweet screenshots on Twitter and Discord. So I'd be curious to hear where you're at with that. But we're going to break down red, black, black, green, and red, green later on today, and then just have some general thoughts about deck building as well in bro. And hopefully, if we have time, get to a roundtable at the end of all that. First things first, a few housekeeping things. Let's talk about the Patreon page. Ben met one of our patrons this past week, so that's very, very sweet. Uh, Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can give back to the show if you so choose and get in contact with Ben to offer him some sushi when he comes to your hometown. <laughs> we always say that Patreon is a great place to give back to because you get access to the Discord when a new set drops. But honestly, we don't talk enough about how it's a great place to have access to when the arena open drops because you get this amazing community of people who are all trying to do the same thing. They're all trying to queue for day two. So you open up that sealed pool, you know, export it to sealed deck, get yourself a good link, say, hey, is this the right build? How would you do this? You get a lot of feedback. It's a really, really nice, uh, nice community to have access to there. So I think, you know, obviously new set season is great if you want to get get a leg up, crack the format wide open. But arena open, you know, mythic championship qualifier, that sort of stuff. Whenever there's those high stakes limited events on arena, the Discord is a great place to be. And of course, we have other sweet reward tiers as you move up the rankings there on Patreon. And we also want to shout out our new patrons the first week that they join. So this week, we're welcoming Jesse, Matt, Sam, Sen, Nick, Frank, the socks are off, Wim, and Darren. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. There we go. We haven't had a wacky name in a while. Thank you, the socks <laughs> are off. We really appreciate all of your support and cannot say thank you enough. Show is also brought to you by TCG Player, best place for anything that you need magic related on the internet or otherwise. They offer you a lot of stuff with their new TCG Player subscriptions. They're really trying to push those hard, which is part of the reason that they bought Channel Fireball. So TCG and CFB have kind of merged and TCG's awesome, you know, magic supply and store and all that sort of stuff is merged with CFB's content arm. And you and I and Alex are all writing articles um, for CFB Pro still. There's a bunch of pros writing articles for CFB Pro. So if you want more content, all the stuff that used to be on CFB Pro is now bundled up in TCG Player subscription service, which is just $6.99 a month. And as part of that, you get free shipping and tracking, which is basically a no-brainer if you're going to order anything from TCG Player. You get extra store credit. You get access to all of these articles that we're writing. And so for whatever you're doing on the website, maybe it's signing up for the subscription, maybe it's just making a purchase, you want to buy a box of Brothers War Sealed to crack open with your friends, whatever purchases you make on the website, we would really appreciate you taking the time to use our affiliate link. And there's two ways you can do that. You can either go to lordslimited.com slash TCG Player, and that will redirect you to our affiliate link. Or you can go to lordslimited.com, click on the support tab, and navigate there the manual way. So again, anything you do over at TCG Player, please use that link. And one last piece of housekeeping. I know folks have been asking about this on my stream, in our Discord. When is the Lords versus Resources? Can we even call it a showdown? It's really more of a smackdown. <laughs> smackdown really <laughs> these, these days, as uh, the record stands, I believe, 8-3. to three. 
uh, in their favor. But we have it scheduled for Tuesday, November 29th. So just tomorrow, if you're listening to this podcast on the day it comes out, uh, Tuesday, November 29th at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. That'll be on all six of our respective Twitch channels. Um, You can check us out on Twitter to find those links or on Twitch, you know. So that'll be really fun. Hoping that all of our prep, all of Ben's phone prep has paid off and we'll uh, we'll be able to get the W because it's uh, very, very needed, I would say. We're just going to take all the two drops. It's going to be totally fine. There's going to be no two drops for them. We're going to get all the two drops, curve out, smack them down. Yeah, but like LSV has double the chances of opening something busted. <laughs> that we do? Yeah, it's really unfortunate. It's Well, and with the, the, the retro artifact, you know, he's now got two shots at getting something broken. He can either get Gix's command or he can get Worm Coil Engine, you know? I have a feeling these are going to be some wild short games. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we wanted to talk about, you know, moving on from our sort of rules of engagement talk, the sliced bread talk from last week and really try and narrow those from the drafting to deck building. Because as Ben referred to, I cannot get this phrase out of my head. He referred to the drafts as caveman drafts. You know, they are fairly straightforward if you subscribe to a certain pick order, which I guess we are sort of in an echo chamber ourselves, subscribing to each (laughs) other's pick order. As we were talking about before the show, I I was like, I still don't quite get what's going on on 17 lands should we ben have you checked it recently i have not checked it recently but i want to push back against us being an echo chamber because we haven't talked since we recorded the last podcast like that's true we are independently coming to the same conclusion so either we're both great at magic or we're both terrible at magic one of the two i I don't really want to leave that question up to the general public i'm afraid of what (laughs) might come back um well let me run down you know, the top 10-ish commons, because I keep checking them every, you know, day or so, every other day. And I usually, you know, my my relationship with data set to set really changes. And I definitely rely on data a lot more if I don't feel confident in a format, you know, because data can, I think the 17 lands rankings of cards can show you some some things of like, hey, you're missing out on this. You're missing that this is performing well for people. And if it's not, not a card that I'm valuing, what am I missing about that card? You know, if I'm not having success, I am feeling quite confident in this format and in, in my strategy. And so I'm not really relying on it, but I do check it every day to say like, hey, does this make any more sense to me? So let me run down some, some top comments for you. Scrapwork cohort still reigning supreme in the number one slot. I assume that's where it's going to stand, and I'm fine with that. Yeah, scrapwork cohort is incredible in this format, and there's a couple reasons why. If you're not wondering what's up with the data or why this is number one, it's great on offense, which is awesome because you want to be ahead in the format. It's mm-hmm. also great on defense. If you have to get off to a slow start and you're, maybe your opponent's pressuring you, one of the best ways to really pressure is with a bunch of three ones. And then you have two bodies that you don't mind blocking and or trading with. So it's really good on defense as well. And on the three one also trades up. It's got an earth. So it's got synergy to come out of the graveyard to give you value that way. It's essentially colorless. Like, I think people are passing it too much because they think it's a white card. This is not a white card. This is a colorless card that you should play, even if you only have access to one way to unearth it. It's very, very good. It is that good. And I think just the combination of playing offense well, defense well, and being synergistic is the mark of a great card in this format. It does everything you're wanting to do. If you subscribe to the Energy Refractor and Evolving Wilds um, philosophy that Ben and I both do, then these unearth cards are all so much higher in your pick order because they are effectively colorless. You know, the next card on this list is Scrapwork Mutt. And I take this early and often in the draft because I'm happy with this as a colorless two drop. And then later on, my energy refractors can help me unearth this. Or if I could maybe be splashing something else, I'm in blue, black, and I want to splash red for something. Well, if I'm already splashing red, I'm already playing a mountain with evolving wilds. Well, the scrapwork on Earth cost is pretty trivial. Right. In the same way that Rafine's Informant was great in Streets of New Capenna, that's exactly the role that Scrapwork yes. fills here, except it almost does it better because you get a rummage twice. Mm-hmm. Rafine's Informant, you only got to do the thing once. And when this chills in your graveyard late in the game, you're essentially drawing a card because you're almost always pitching a land. And then Excavation Explosion in the number three slot. I'm fine with those top three. Cohort, Mutt, Explosion, that all makes total sense to me. Then it starts to go a little wonky. Prison Sentence number four and Ambush Paratrooper number five. Now, I know I saw at the end of our show notes, you've got some thoughts about white that I'm interested to hear. But what are your thoughts about Prison Sentence and Paratrooper being four and five? I cast Prison Sentence for the first time yesterday during (laughs) the sealed arena open. And I was pleasantly surprised, I got to say. It didn't feel terrible. And the Scry 2, like the Scry 2, I was like, oh, 
This is nice. It yeah. felt, felt kind of good. I mean, I still don't think it's a good removal spell, but I had bumped it up slightly after playing with it. It's very surprising to me. You know, removal being ranked highly on 17 lands game in hand win rate is not surprising, but it's surprising that prison sentence is so much higher than overwhelming remorse, power stone fracture, disfigure, all cards that I would take over it. That's just got to be it being pulled up by scrapwork cohort and other good white cards, right? Or those cards happen to be in decks with other good cards. There's no way. Those cards are totally mediocre. I wonder if that's true. Yeah. I mean, Prison Sentence, I think, is is fine. I don't know. Mediocre seems aggressive to me. Ambush Paratrooper seems quite mediocre to me. I have not. I don't know if I've cast one of those yet. Then we have Guy's Gift and Goblin Blast Runner. That makes sense to me. They're both cheap. They're both going to be, you know, really effective when they're cast. And then we get Aeronaut Cavalry, the five mana, three, four soldier in white that has flying and airlift chaplain to round out our top 10. That's a bit wild. I have come up on airlift chaplain quite a bit. I think the secret to airlift chaplain is you really want to have a lot of unearth in your deck and similar to all the other self mill creatures. But when chaplain is binning like two unearth creatures and you can decline and have it be a two, two and still have those two unearth creatures in your graveyard, it feels really strong. And then the, the cavalry is just like top end in decks that are good, right? I think that's probably why it makes its way up there. But I don't think it's that high of a pick, at least not for me. I am not on the white is the truth life. I also don't think it's the worst anymore. I have moved it down a little bit behind blue. But one other thing I want to shout yeah. out in relation to the data, you'd mentioned removal and how good removal is. That's the other thing about scrapwork cohort. It's great against removal. Yes. Your opponent plays scrapwork cohort and you're looking at disfigure overwhelming remorse in your hand and don't really have a board presence and you're like, okay, well, I guess I have to overwhelming remorse this scrapwork cohort. Well, remorse is like, that's okay-ish because it at least exiles it. But yeah, when it's disfigure or like fracture or explosion, you're like, and then it just comes back and they get more rectangles. Yeah. Scrapboard cohort is real good. Yeah. All right. Let's dive into generic deck building tips before we get into these three archetype outlines. I love this first point. This seems like you you really poured over it. You really wanted to make sure that you were giving the best information we possibly could. You say, put good cards in your decks. I mean, it sounds simple, but I think people need to hear it. This is a fairly straightforward format as far as what the good cards are. And you should try to pick a lot of them and you should try to put a lot of them in their deck. Like, a lot of games I win, even in Mythic, you know, versus another Mythic or versus in a Diamond player are because they had one card that was kind of like, eh, I don't know why that's in your deck. Or they had one highly situational card and that situation didn't come up and I just put creatures on the battlefield and turn them sideways. And the games aren't all that simple. I don't want to mislead people as far as how complex the games are, but you really have to have tight deck building in the format. I think the deck building decisions are hard and you need to build your deck in such a way so that all of your cards are on the same plan and doing the things that they do best in your deck. Yeah, I mean, I, I set you up there as like, oh, I'm needling you, I'm making fun of you. But this point really does matter. And I think that idea of like you have some situational cards or some a, a little cute pocket of synergy. I'm not trying to shortchange that. I'm not saying that pockets of synergy are bad or like decks that are greater than the sum of their parts are bad. But there are definitely sort of, and I think this is why I want to talk about this list of cards we have in a second and then talking about, you know, these archetypes in particular. I loved how you laid these out of like, here's what the plan is. Here's what the pros and the cons are of the deck. And here are the key cards of the deck to sort of let you know, like where our head's at when we're building them. But I think some general limited heuristics of deck building, like for myself, I don't put combat tricks in defensive decks. You know, if I have a grindy green black deck, I'm not going to want to put giant growth in there. Gaia's Gift has gets another pass because Gaia's Gift can be, you know, a protection spell. It can sort of fill a similar role as Emergency Weld or a way to rebuy a powerful effect that you have or a powerful creature you have. But something that's just purely like pushing damage, I don't want to cast that when I'm blocking. So the more defensive my deck is, or the less aggressive my deck is, I don't put combat tricks in, you know, stuff like that. You need a high creature count for cards like Ravenous Gigamon right? If you don't have, if you have like 13 creatures, I really don't want to put that card on my deck if I can help it. And those are the kinds of little falters that you can make. And that often leads to more snowbally decisions of, okay, so do I lean more into this levitating statue world in this red black deck and try and skew, you know, 12 creatures and the rest non-creature spells? 
Or do I remove that and bump up my creature count to enable this Gigamole? But it's very rare that those two cards should be in the same deck. Yes, completely agree with that idea. And you're faced with constant decisions like that when you're deck building in this format. As caveman-y as the drafts are, <laughs> I do think the deck building has been really interesting in this format. And I think this format really rewards tight deck building more than other formats. And I do think that's something I'm pretty good at, which is why I'm having a lot of success in the format. I think it, if you get all your cards on the same page and have a good plan, it really pays you off for that. I know this is not a school of thought that you often subscribe yourself to, but I think our listeners would benefit from if you are not building your deck as you draft. I mean, I think that's something you should do in any limited format. But really in this format, if you're not building your deck as you draft and, and thinking about, you know, what your final 23 is, you know, when you get to deck building and you have 49 cards in the deck and you got to cut nine, I think you're in for a world of hurt in terms of, oh no, I don't actually have enough creatures or non-creatures or sacrifice outlets or sacrifice, you know, triggers for my blast runners, etc. Yes. Completely agree. I don't really do that so much, but I think because I don't do that, I do a different thing, which could also be helpful if you don't subscribe to the build your deck as you go. What I do if I end up with what you said, which I do sometimes, like 29 cards at the end of the draft or whatever, I take everything out of the deck and then put in like the core 15 cards that I am certain I'm going to play and then look at what those cards really want. Like, do they want more non-creature spells? Do I have a levitating statue and I want more non-creatures? Or like you said, do I have ravenous gigamole and I want to up my creature count a little bit. I just kind of see what my best cards want me to do and then try to fill in the rest rather than cutting six or seven cards. That approach works pretty well for me. Yeah, I like that too. Another question that you want to be asking yourself is what your deck's plan is against the good aggressive decks, right? Are you aggressive yourself and you're racing? Are you aggressive yourself or grindy yourself and you have life gain and so you can outrace it or you can outlast it or outpace it? Are you just planning to go one for one with removal and outvalue them in other ways? But aggressive decks are real in the format. The mono red menace, I think white based aggressive decks are a menace as well. I think those decks are very real. We'll talk about some flavors of some of the Jun decks as well that can beat down. Um, and you just really need to have a plan against them. Well, and I think once you get in the game too, like all fine yeah. and good to say, you know, I'm going to use some removal and then you draw a hand without removal. And what are you going to do? Like, what are your backup plans? I think in the games, like being able to identify your role early, like whether or not you are capable of racing, if you have two aggressive decks, and if you're not capable of racing, like you were on the draw and you're a step behind, you have to shift gears. And what does that mean for you and how you're playing the games out as well? I mean, it's definitely there in deck building, but it also happens once the game starts for sure. Yeah. And I, I think there is some ideas floating out there in the, in the general community that mid range is a disaster in this format. Oh, I love mid-range in this format. Is that true? I think so. I think there are some folks who are perhaps misinterpreting what content they're consuming is saying, or just folks who really think like, we have to be hyper-aggressive or you have to have bombs. And those are the only two options. And I definitely don't think that's the case. But I think the thing to remember for mid-range decks or for control decks is exactly what Ben is saying. You can have, and I think Red Black does this really well. We'll talk about that at the end of the episode. But I, I think you can have your, your game plan A which can be I'm aggressive or I'm controlling or whatever. I'm grindy. I have an engine. I'm finding this bomb. But your opening hand might just be two drop, three drop, four drop. And then you just curve out and beat down. And that's the beauty of decks like that. That's the beauty of subscribing to sliced bread as the rules of engagement for the format of like, you have to have two drops. And then sometimes because you're building your deck lean, that L from sliced, because you're building your deck lean, you can go two drop, three drop, four drop. And then you're the aggressor, you're on the play. Similarly, you can be on the draw, you can be mulliganing on the draw, and you're an aggro deck, and then you look at your hand and you go, eh, this Blast Runner's not probably going to pull its weight here, I'm going to need to shift my game plan, I'll send that to the bottom, we'll try and do something else. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. That is shocking to me that people don't like mid-range. I mean, I haven't really been connected to the community this past week, but I would say exactly what you're saying. Like, the decks that I think are the best that I've drafted are the ones that are capable of curving out and just winning the game because you got ahead, stay ahead, because I think that's a really easy way to win games in this format. But that also have the tools to like back up, slow down and be like one notch slower or two notches slower than the hyper aggressive decks and just absolutely crush them because you included cards in your deck that are good against aggro starts. Yeah, I, I really like this next point as well. When you talk about this, the decks that have card filtering and or mana sinks 
are way better than decks that don't. And again, that sounds obvious in a way, or that sounds like, well, well, duh, you get more resources. But I do think, I think this sort of stems from folks still undervaluing everything that says unearth on them. Yes, that certainly. And I think I was worried about this last week when we were talking about, you know, you got to get your curve lower, you got to be aggressive if you don't have bombs, that sort of stuff. I think people can really misconstrue that because there is like the common wisdom of, well, if you're aggro, you really need to be aggro and you don't want to put, you know, a random thrill of possibility in your aggro deck because drawing that might be put you just enough slow that you don't have enough of an aggressive push to really cross the finish line. Like every non-aggressive card you include in your aggressive deck makes your aggressiveness worse and then you turn into a mid-range deck, but like kind of a bad mid-range deck, you know, but I don't think that's true here at all. I mean, part of the reason red white is so strong is because it has so many good ways to filter or even just red aggro in general, right? You have scrap work mutt with built in filtering, you have bitter reunion as a key card to make goblin blast runner good. That also just happens to let you filter while being a sacrifice outlet. So, so many things are working towards those aggressive decks having filtering naturally. But I've drafted some decks that don't. And I think it's really easy to fall into this trap in green, black, or just green in general. Green doesn't get a lot of filtering. And decks that don't have filtering are an absolute disaster because if you play against people that know what they're doing, And you're both going like two drop, two drop. Okay, we either stare at each other or we trade. Three drop, three drop. Okay, we're either like trading or racing past each other in the night. The games really tend to slow down or go a lot longer if both players subscribe to, okay, we got to play to the board early. And then if those games go longer because you both played to the board early, you have to have things to do in the late game to pull ahead. And if you don't, you're going to lose if your opponent does. Yeah, I I think this is a a really fantastic point that you that cannot be understated. And it's sort of counterintuitive that like, well, the format feels fast, right? There are these hyper aggressive decks, but if everybody, if you're playing against someone who also subscribes to slice spread, if they're playing to the board, they have a low curve, you can stall out. Like I have a lot of games that play out that way. And then either card quality, raw card quality wins out, you know, the game stalls out long enough that someone finds their Gix's commander, their Teferi or whatever, or it comes down to raw card quantity. And that's about mana sinks. That's about card filtering, card draw, etc. Yeah. And I think if you don't have those things, you really do need to be like the five goblin blast runners. I'm going to win the game on turn five or lose the game on turn five. Like you, you really need to go hard. But the thing about the blast runner deck is that it's still the card you want the most with blast runner is bitter reunion. And so like that in and of itself sort of falls into this uh, category as well. Yeah. I agree. All right. I love this because this sort of leads into this context matters thing that we'll talk about when we look at the three archetypes is that there are so many cards in the format that are good if you meet certain conditions or criteria in deck building. But meeting those conditions is really important for your deck to function if you include those cards. So what are some examples here? So like the first and foremost example, and I feel really passionately about this particular list of cards, and I'm sure there are other cards like it, but just to get people's wheels turning, because I see so many people put cards in their decks that are like, well, that could have been a good card for you, but it just isn't. And I think a poster child for this is Epic Confrontation. The one on a green sorcery um, target creature you control gets plus one plus two, and then it fights target creature you don't control. And normally I am not a believer in the green fight spell. I love Epic Confrontation in this format. Two mana is so efficient. A lot of times you can double spell, makes your creature bigger so you can attack for a bigger chunk of damage if you clear the board out with Epic Confrontation. Just a lot of things going for it, as well as having Gaia's Gift potentially. You know, you can do it a little more safely into open mana if you've also got a Gaia's Gift in tandem with the Epic Confrontation. But you just need to put creatures that have power and toughness in your deck and specifically toughness like a deck full of three ones or three twos does not epically confront nearly as well (laughs) as a deck that has the three mana three three or multiple of those the perimeter patrol or whatever it's called or an obstinate bailoff like makes your epic confrontation way better and i think another thing to think about this card is you really want to have the capability of being on the front foot right you want to force the opponent to tap out so that you can more safely epically confront them once they're tapped out. So there's just small things like that where if you just jam epic confrontation in a deck with 12 creatures and you know four of them are three ones, it's not going to be a good card for you. But if you have 15 creatures and they're all pretty reasonably statted and you're playing to the board early, it's going to be an excellent card for you. Yeah, for sure. I think Mightstone's animation is a great example here. This is the three and a blue common. It enchants an artifact. Enchants any artifact. Doesn't have to be a non-creature artifact. Enchants any artifact. You draw a card and it makes that artifact a creature with base power and toughness 4-4. 
You want to make sure that you have lots of non-creature artifacts, I think, and lots of incidental non-creature artifacts. So whether that's, I think power, animating power stones is the best thing you can do. So whether that's off the back of something on turn three that makes a power stone, an Argothian opportunist, an excavation explosion, Gix's caress maybe, something like that, stern lesson in blue. So you're doing something that makes a power stone, and then you're getting to incidentally turn that into a 4-4 with haste that draws you a card. Or the cheap can-tripping artifacts, Energy Refractor, or Elsewhere Flask, things like that. Chromatic Star, even though it doesn't cantrip when it ETBs, when it enters the graveyard from the battlefield, it's going to draw you a card. So potentially, you get to draw a card with Animation, then draw a card with Chromatic Star. I see so much people being like, well, you can just animate Scrapwork Mutt. Well, you can just animate, <laughs> you know, your... Uh, your combat courier. Yeah, I can. And yeah, those have on earth. So it slightly mitigates it. But the way to make my son's animation so good is to have as many of those effects where it feels like it's unfair that you're like, wait, you got, you already got this free thing. That's good for you. And now you get to turn that free thing into extra card plus a four, four that I have to deal with. That's how you're maximizing that card. Have you put it on levitating statue yet? Of course it's busted totally broken and that is like kind of counter to your point because those are two real cards but it's right. so powerful that it's totally worth doing at a minimum you get a five five flyer when you cast the might stones animation and if your levitating statue was bigger before that oh so good yeah the next thing i want to talk about is the cycle of self mill cards so i feel like i deeply understand these now after my weekend Ooh. of mobile magic playing and before i don't think i appreciated them quite enough i think the number one thing you have to have with the self mill cards is a lot of unearth. Like previously, I was kind of off track, like thinking the green and the black ones were the best. And you wanted like creatures in your yard for the green, black creatures matter kind of thing. And that just is more gravy than anything else. Like the real pay dirt with these self mill cards is milling unearth cards and then getting to unearth them and get the value that you get after unearthing them. And I think in particular, Ravenous Gigamole really wants you to have a high creature count. And similarly for the red one, you want to have a high artifact count. But if you have the unearth stuff, almost always you're meeting the requirements for those cards. The blue one's a bit of an outlier. That's more of a defensive card. And I think the worst of the cycle, which is another knock against blue, but even the white one, which we had poo-pooed last week a little bit, the Airlift Chaplain, I really like that card because if you have multiple copies and you have a lot of Unearthed, you have a lot of Scrapwork cohorts, just really lets you kind of chain them together and put a lot of pressure on your opponent. Yeah, for sure. I think the blue one is basically like, do you have Teferi in your deck? Are you trying to find <laughs> Teferi? You know, if so, you can play that. Yes, the sweeter your deck is, the better the blue one is. Right. Uh, next, we have Emergency Weld. That's the one in a black return target artifact or creature card from your graveyard to your hand. And then you get to make a 1-1 artifact creature soldier token. You know, do you have self-mill? Do you have cards worth reanimating? You know, the, the higher your individual card quality is, creature quality or artifact quality is, the better Emergency Weld gets. But you really, I think you need to think about, like, it's very easy to have that in your curve and you think about it like a two drop. It's not a two drop. You're never not playing a two drop. Two, right? Do you have any artifact entering the battlefield synergies? Do you have sacrifice synergies? Something to do with that one, one token? You know, the, the more ways you can answer yes to those questions, the better this card is though I'm still like rarely happy to play more than one. And the more times you're answering no, the, this is not an auto-include kind of card in your black decks. I agree. Next up, we've got Moment of Defiance. The two in a black target creature gets plus two, plus one, and gains lifelink, and you draw a card. This might be my favorite card that's hard to play or hard to include <laughs> in your deck in the format, because it really does ask some things of you. Yeah. You have to have reasonably statted creatures. Again, like three threes, four fours, two fours. You have to have things with toughness that are going to survive combat when you cast Moment of Defiance. But if you stick this card, win a combat against an aggressive deck, the game is over. Like how many commons that go like fairly late? Like it would not be crazy for this to wheel. Mm -hmm. How many commons can you say that about that just you win the game? when you stick them, right? That's very powerful in a format full of aggro decks. So if your deck meets the requirements of like, you've got a high creature count, you've got some creatures with some high toughness, this card's great to include. Yeah, this is a really interesting card because basically in aggressively sided versions of blue black, I feel very confident about including moment of defiance in those decks, right? When it also triggers my stuff that cares about draw to, I'm thrilled with this card. Beyond that, this is always a big question mark for me. 
I, I'm always a little like, oh, do I have enough creatures? Are my creatures reasonably static or evasive enough for this to be good? Am I likely to be aggressive? And I feel like I'm a little too tentative. This more often I feel like lands in my, well, I'm not super aggressive, so I cut giant growth. I'm not super aggressive, so I cut moment of defiance thought process. And I think it shouldn't. I think I need to dig a little bit deeper on this card. I'm a huge fan of the miser's moment of defiance, especially <laughs> in green, black and red, black as well. If you've got a little bit bigger of a red, black deck, mm -hmm. the miser's moment of defiance goes a long way. Yeah, I, I, I could totally see it for sure. Next up is Power Stone Fracture, one and a black for a sorcery as an additional cost to cast, sacrifice an artifact or a creature, destroy target creature or planeswalker. You need disposable artifacts and creatures. And I honestly take that for granted because of how I draft. You know, I take the the cheap cantripping artifacts fairly highly. I take power stone makers fairly highly. But there are definitely times where I end the draft and I go, oh, no, I don't really have like I have two power stone fractures, but I don't actually have a lot of things that I'm happy to sacrifice. I don't really end up with a ton of unearthed things. I don't really want to be sacrificing my board presence to be able to blow up stuff on the other side of the battlefield. So you really want to make sure that you have those things. Because when you do, this card is incredible. It's so efficient. But when you don't, it can be dead in your hand a lot. Right. It has a huge spectrum of how good it is based on how you drafted and constructed your deck. Next up is Goblin Blast Runner. The word is out on this, but I think the word is out on this almost in a bad way. <laughs> so this is the red one mana one two. And if you sacrificed a permanent this turn, it gets plus two plus O and menace. I think people are picking this card too highly. That's just my spider sense. Obviously, I've not watched people draft, but I've played against a lot of decks that have Goblin Blast Runner in it. The Goblin Blast Runner should not be in. To want this card, you really want to be aggressive, like very aggressive. And you want to have a lot of ways to sacrifice things for little to no mana cost. You want your bitter reunions. You want the eggs that sacrifice themselves for free. You want Evolving Wild to sacrifice itself for free. And if you want one, you want like four or five. Like a deck with two Goblin Blast Runners is a lot less exciting than a deck with four Goblin Blast Runners. Agreed, right? The more you have, the more you can, that can be your deck's game plan. I kind of feel similarly, there's not many commons in the set that do this. I feel similarly about Mightstone's animation. You can get like three or four copies of that and that can just be your deck's plan. And then your whole thing is, let me get as many ways to make incidental artifacts or cantripping artifacts along the way in one mana, two mana, three mana before I cast the animations. I think Blast Runner is a similar thing. It's sort of an, an all or nothing kind of deck's plan. So I think that gives you a taste of just the way you need to be thinking about cards in this format, right? And these are not the be all end all list. There are a ton of cards like this that ask things of you in deck building that you need to pay attention to and make sure you're answering yes to the questions of what do I need to do to make this card good? Or what do I need to do to make this card as effective as it possibly can be? Because I think putting cards that could be good, but are kind of ineffective in your deck is a, an easy way to lose games. And then you end up in a spot where you're like, well, I'm playing all these cards that are good. I don't know why I keep losing. And the answer is, yeah, you're playing cards that are good, but you're not giving those cards the environment to really flourish and live up to their potential. Oh my gosh. Spoken like a true teacher. <laughs> well, I love this new bit that we have where we don't get to our main episode subject until 40 minutes into the episode like we did last week. So let's dive in to these three archetypes. First up, we have green-black. What's the game plan for green-black in your mind? Just always win. I feel like I <laughs> cannot lose when I'm piloting a good green-black deck. So your plan is to play the good green creatures and the good black removal. Like these two colors complement each other really well because black has some great removal, but not great creatures. And green's got great creatures, but not great removal. I mean, it's got epic confrontation, but that's tough to get sometimes. And then I think the other thing this deck does really well is it plays both sides of the coin. So you can either curve out if you're keeping your deck lean and remove your opponent's blockers if you're ahead and just kind of smash face. Or if you get off to a slow start, you can use like the life gain tools, you've got moment of defiance, you've got boulder branch golem to gain life. There's a lot of incidental ways to gain yeah. life in black and green. And I think just really put the hammer down on the aggressive deck. So this is, I think, a classic mid range deck. And I think 
a very good spot to be in the format. I totally agree. I mean, this is a prime example of the kind of deck where you can just go, oops, Argothian Sprite into Argothian Opportunist into whatever, Ravenous Gigamole backed up by removal, you know, mill some creatures and then you're making your overwhelming remorse cheap. That's all commons, baby. And it just gets better from there. Yeah. And I think the other thing this does really well without doing it, obviously, is there aren't a lot of frilly cards that you can put in the deck. Like you huh. just get creatures and you get removal and you play a really good cabs deck. The other thing you get access to is a bonkers gold uncommon in Skyfisher yeah. Spider. This card is illegal. Like the little animation of like the little thing going pew, <laughs> and like blowing up your thing. It feels so good when you're doing it. It's so depressing when your opponent casts Skyfisher Spider. But that's the uh, two black green for the three three. And when it ETBs, you can sack another permanent to destroy target non-land permanent. And then when it dies, you can gain life equal to the number of creature cards in your graveyard if you're willing to exile it. You have to sacrifice a creature to it because I've definitely had people be like, why didn't you sacrifice that power stone? I was like, because there are rules and we have to <laughs> because follow Because cards rules. have text. Okay, so those are the pros of the deck, right? No frills. It's very clear cut. You have access to lots of life gain so you can you know, really have a good matchup against the aggressive decks. What are the cons? Are there any downsides? Initially, I couldn't think of one. I just said that I loved this deck and I think it's the best deck in the format that isn't absolutely doing sweet nonsense things. But I do think I finally thought of one. It can be really hard to find card advantage or card filtering at lower rarities. Like a green black deck loves Maze Mind Tome. I mean, like what mm. deck doesn't, you know, from the, the retro yeah. artifacts, the two tap draw a card. And then when it eventually gets four counters on it, you gain four life. But stuff like that, that are ways to two for one or get card advantage, I think are pretty important to green black because you can also have hands where you just play Sprite, opportunist opportunist and you stare at your opponent for a while and then they have ways to filter and you don't and you just lose so i think trying to find card advantage in green black is pretty important and this is my favorite home for gigamole this is the the cycle of this the mill three but this is the four mana two three mill three and then you can return a creature from them that's i think you know because this deck wants to have such a high creature count you can pretty easily i think um if you're you're focused on it get to 15 16 17 creatures in this deck and then that really becomes a clear two for one. And, and that's not a bad spot to be at for getting card advantage at common. But yes, certainly you want to be on the lookout for it at higher rarities as well. Yeah. And then as far as key cards, it really just is the good black and green commons. I mean, you want your disfigures, you want your overwhelming remorses, scrap work ragers, great in the four drop slot as a way to get sort of a two for one. And then in green, you get premium creatures in Argothian Sprite. You get your Boulder Branch Golems to really make sure that you smash the aggro decks. You get Epic Confrontation as another removal spell. You get Argothian Opportunist to maybe ramp towards some top end artifacts. Mm -hmm. So just pick the good green and black cards, put them in your deck, and you profit. This is another really good spot because of all the self mill that green black can do. It's a really good spot for the oops all on earth style of drafting where you grab a couple energy refractors and then you just get these incidental you know oh i threw a scrapwork cohort in my deck cool i threw a scrapwork mutt in my deck and then as you're milling you get to find that energy refractor at some point cast it and then have a way to that certainly takes use of power stones because weirdly green black make quite a bit of power stones without working too hard. Um, and then you can certainly use them for activated abilities. You know, Argothian Sprite gets the pump. Maybe you have Transmogrant Altar in your deck and you're doing some Clay Revenant shenanigans. I don't know. But you can definitely make a lot of power stones, use a lot of power stones in this deck. But I definitely feel like Oops All on Earth has a good home in, in Green Black. Yeah, for sure. All right. Next up, we have Green Red Stompy Slash Sacrifice. Does this deck have multiple plans, you think? I do. I think any deck that's got red in it is capable of having a sacrifice plan, depending on how many Goblin Blast Runners you see. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the basic plan with green red is to curve out and beat down with some cheap creatures. This is the best home, I think, for combat tricks in the format. I think Gaia's Gift really shines in green red. Um, and then you've also got access to some good removal. You've got Epic Confrontation. You've got Excavation Explosion. But curve out, kill your opponent's stuff, force them into bad blocks use some combat tricks and profit. So what is the holy trinity of the Brothers War? It's it definitely is Goblin Blast Runner, Bitter Reunion, but what's number 3? Is it Mutt? Is it Penragon Strongbull? I would say Penragon Strongbull. I love Strongbull. And then that 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 lives in the one, two, three, you know, curve out world that I like the holy trinity to exist in. Yeah, I agree. Strongbull is also just phenomenal. I think this is probably a good spot to just talk about this key core of red aggressive decks. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
those cards plus excavation explosion as a removal spell, like those four cards just are what any red deck wants to be doing. And I think you want as many copies of all of those cards that you can get as possible. And if you have those in in multiples, you're going to be in a pretty good spot, I think. But the more of those cards you get, the heavier red you want to be, which is also something to keep in mind as well when you're deck building. Like how heavily are you going to skew towards one color? Are you going to try to be mono red and get those Sardian Cliff Stompers? Oh, speaking of mm-hmm. cards that don't belong in decks, Sardian Cliff Stomper, the one in the red... <laughs> 04, that if you have four mountains on your turn, it gets power equal to the number of mountains you have. That only goes in mono red, folks. Like, does not go in your heavy red with five forest deck. You no. need to have all mountains in your deck to put Sardian Cliff Stomper in your deck. Think the card costs quad red. The card is like Phyrexian Obliterator. That's what it costs. So once you think about it like that, then you go, oh yeah, I would never, you know, even when I draft cube and you're drafting mono black, like putting a colorless land in your mono black deck that has an obliterator and like a Geralt's messenger, like these triple black quad black cards, that already feels like a, ooh. So even putting like one, like putting, you know, evolving wilds and a planes in, you know, a deck to maybe splash something or an island to splash iconoclast or something. That already makes me go, oh, this is quad red. I don't know if I can do that. Right. Well, and you really want it to come online on turn four. So if you draw that Evolving Wilds and go get that Plains, then you're delayed by a turn in what should be a very aggressive deck. I think that is probably reasonable, like a Wilds and a Plains, something like that. That's already already a little dicey, I think. Like reasonable, but dicey. Yes, doable. But holy cow. That just goes along with the whole deck building thing is those cards. Like people are doing things like that and they're like, well, starting Cliff Snopper is a good card. Well, yeah, but you don't have it in a home where it's going to be a good card. An environment where it will thrive, Ben. That's right. We want a safe, (laughs) what what, what kind of an environment do we want? We want a safe, welcoming environment for all of our magic cards. That's right. I do think, though, in all seriousness, with regard to these red cards, that the format has kind of already started to adapt to this red aggressive deck. And I think it can get really preyed upon if you don't have an excellent version of it. Like the premium versions of it, yes, near unbeatable. But if you're trying to draft this deck and it feels like it's contested and like you were expecting to wheel a Goblin Blast Runner and don't, you need to have alarm bells going off on your head because I think the mediocre versions of the hyper-aggressive decks are just borderline unplayable in the format because you lose to the good aggressive decks and then you also lose to the mid-range decks like black green just laughs at a mediocre red aggressive deck and like yeah you could say this stuff about good control decks too you could say that well a bad control deck is going to lose to the good control decks and it's going to lose to the good aggro decks and it might lose to the bad aggro decks too but i think what people are hearing about the format which is it's aggressive you got to lower your curve you got to get your curve down you got to be efficient like what content creators are saying about the format is going to lead people towards ending up in bad or underpowered aggro decks more than like ending up in a bad control deck. You know what I mean? Like you could hear the rules of engagement and misinterpret that and think no matter what, I've got to play a really low curve aggro deck. And that is just not the case at all. I I think mid range is excellent in this format. And if you start to draft this red package and it's contested, I would abandon ship in a heartbeat. I do not like anything less, I think, than a mediocre aggro deck. (laughs) Okay, so we've talked about this like near unbeatable curve out that red can provide and, and certainly in red green that that's one of the pros for the deck. I think that leads to the next point, which is that opponents are usually on the back foot, which allows you to leverage tricks and removal very effectively i mean good gracious gaia's gift is really brutal when you're on the back foot against this deck and whirling strike which is plus two plus plus oh first strike and trample like those cards like there's those cards and then giant growth can also be good um sometimes your opponents you know clearly got the plus two plus oh to everything for four mana that card's not great but you know can have a home in this kind of deck but there the variety of those tricks and they're them all being so cheap most of the time makes them almost impossible to play around effectively you can go like well, if it's Gift, I'm screwed in this way. <laughs> and if it's Whirling Strike, I'm screwed in this way. And there's no way for me to mitigate either of them. Yeah, for sure. I think this also gives you a lot of uncommons that play really well with Goblin mm. Blast Runner. I mean, Mishra's Research Desk, just in general, the one mana, um, and then you can pay one, tap, sack it to exile the top two and choose one to play until the end of your next turn with Unearth. That's excellent. But also you get Mask of the Jade Crafter Ooh. in red-green 
which is just two sacrifice triggers for your Goblin Blast Runner for a card that you would want to play anyway. And then there's also a lot of random incidental power stone making that happens in red greens. This can be a great home for alloy animus, the single green one, one yes. two and a green and turn a power stone into a four, four. Like if you're already putting pressure on the opponent, you know, animating two power stones when you hit six mana is a great way to close out the game. And it also just gives you a one drop to get on board and get in a couple points of damage early on. Well, that's another thing we, we keep talking about this archetype, like it's hyper aggressive, but I've also shockingly really loved more <laughs> mid range slash even late game versions of red green because you get this sort of glut of three mana really good three mana cards that make power stones with uh, excavation explosion argothian opportunist and then the signpost uncommon in arbalist engineers which can just like go late right if you just sort of navigate your way into red green in pack one and a couple of these are opened at the table you're going to get them you can get them on the wheel and the flexibility of this card is great. Obviously, the, the you know the baseline of make a power stone is what you're going to be doing. But picking off X1s is awesome when you're on the draw or to push through damage. And the haste and plus one, plus one and trample on anything when it enters the battlefield is so good. It's great for itself on curve, but can also do some pretty broken things later in the game as well. I just think that can give you a, you know, as you talked about, you get your alloy animists. Maybe you're playing our preview card of Saren Steelseeker, and then you're just, you know, turboing through the top of your library by surveilling or, or pulling out lands and then what are you doing are you ramping to some you know large prototype monsters are you ramping towards some large unearth monsters whatever are you turning those artifacts into four fours but the deck has a lot of game i think its best strategy is this aggressive thing we're outlining but it, it has a lot more play than that too yeah i do think even more than green black this is another great home for oops all artifacts with unearth yeah with another you know ways to make a bunch of power stones and then you've also got the green two drop blanchwood prowler that just incidentally mills you to maybe find some of those unearths but this is like the type of thing a red green you know have some power stones has some artifacts and then maybe you have an evolving wilds to go get a planes and you have an energy refractor like great place to just pick scrapwork cohort super highly and jam like two copies of Scrapwork Cohort in your red-green deck. That card is amazingly flexible, and I think everyone should be drafting Scrapwork Cohort. All right, so before we round out red-green and head into red-black, some cons. I think it is very easy to run out of steam if your opponent has cheap interaction. Mm. And I think this is a problem for red decks in general specifically. Like if you go turn one Blast Runner and your opponent disfigures it, that's a tough thing to overcome at the start of the game. So just be on the lookout for that. Not much you can do about it if you are you know, playing an aggressive deck, which is one of the reasons I have shied away from hyper aggro just a little bit. But it's also, again, very capable of flooding if you don't include filtering. Like sometimes you end up with all these power stones on the battlefield. And if you didn't build your deck right, you don't have mana sinks for your power stones and you can flood out and draw too many lands. I think that is a common way to lose games in this format. Right. I think Scrapwork Mutt and Mask of the Jadecraft go a long way in helping to mitigate that in this kind of deck. Yes. All right. Red, black, I think more so than the other two exists on its own kind of spectrum. I think it can be a good home for the hyper aggro red based package we've already talked about built around Goblin Blast Runners, Bitter Reunions and Bursts of Unearthed Creatures. But it also can be a grindy deck that accrues value over time, utilizes some kind of engine, likely including Clay Revenant, you know, utilizing Power Stones, or just a ton of two-for-ones. And it also can then do something else that's not really in the middle, it's just sort of off on its own axis, which is just pure Steel and Sack with Sibling Rivalry and all caps, cheap Sack Outlets. But I think this is the least desirable of the three decks. I would rather be hyper aggro, grindy value. I think the steel and sack decks are a little too, if you draw your cards in the wrong order, if you have too many expensive sack outlets, etc., your deck can fall flat. And this is poster child for probably the best deck in the format, right? I, I like green black a little more, but I think red black is probably the consensus best deck. Yeah, I, I like, I mean, I, that, that's my own bias, I think, and preference is that I like red black a lot because of the spectrum, but you know, I, I could take it all. I, I still really do like red, black, and green in this format. So the pros are tons of interaction. You get black and reds, glut of removal, overwhelming remorse, excavation explosion, power stone fracture, go for the throat, disfigure, obliterating bolt, even unleash shell, just tons of ways to kill your opponent's stuff. One of my favorite things for a limited deck is redundancy. It is easy to get rectangles to sacrifice, sacrifice outlets, 
unearth creatures, removal, as we talked about. Basically, if the deck is remotely open, you should be able to get the pieces that you need. So what are those pieces, right? The, the key cards maybe is, is a good spot to talk about these because they're not really like the other archetypes. They're not really individual cards. They're more like things you're trying to get. So there's a bunch of sack outlets. Penragon Strongbowl is the best of the bunch because I think it leads you towards, hey, I could be aggressive with this. That's its best home, right? Makes use of your unearthed creatures because they're artifacts, makes use of your power stones, threat of activation. It gives you reach in the late game if your opponent happens to stabilize. Like how many times have you been at four life and then your opponent top deck Strongbowl and you go, oh, cool, I'm dead. Like that card just closes out games. So that's, I think, the best of the bunch. And then Thraxodemon, I would honestly have a next, I guess, Thraxodemon slash Junkyard Genius as the signpost. But those both cost three um, to sacrifice stuff and, and both do different things. One accrues value, one pushes damage. But repeatable ways to sacrifice are important, I think. And ones that can be a little flexible in terms of, are these good for pushing damage? Are these good for value, etc.? Then you have some one-offs like Power Stone Fracture. Very, very good. Falls into the camp of removal as well. And then something like Killzone Acrobat, the three mana, three, two, when it attacks, you can sack a thing to give it flying until end of turn. The fact that that's a free sacrifice outlet and the only true free sacrifice outlet that can also sack creatures, right? I mean, Pendragon Strongbull is cheap, only costing one, but can only sacrifice artifacts. I think Killzone Acrobat is the best for that sort of steal and sack sibling rivalry plan. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So back up to the pros. I think this deck makes really good use of power stones and cheap cantripping artifacts as well, right? It's really good home for energy refractor and elsewhere flask and chromatic star because you want things to sacrifice to either trigger your blast runners or to grow your strong bulls or to accrue value with Thraxodemon. And the deck really likes, as we talked about, energy refractor and evolving wilds. Evolving wilds is another way to just freely trigger your blast runners. So because you like those cards, it's also easy to splash rares or something like the green black spider if you see it. So there's just a lot of flexibility that this deck offers you, I think. And I think if the deck is open, it would not be uncommon for you to have like 33 playables or like right. 35 playables because there's so many good cards in red and black. And then filtering that down to which version of this deck you want to have is really important. Well, and that's the biggest con, I think, of the deck is that it's so easy to be caught in the middle of hyper aggro or grindy. And I really don't think, you know, I don't think mid-range is a bad place to be. But I think so often when I get deck techs for red-black, I could sort the cards into two piles. I could say these 15 cards are at their best in the aggro versions of this deck. And these eight cards are at their best in a grindy version of the deck. And it's not that putting those together gives you a mid-range deck. What happens when you put those together is you have a deck with an identity crisis. Yes, and I think having a deck with an identity crisis is a disaster in this format. Like, if you're losing games of Magic in this format and you don't know why, I would hazard a guess that this is very likely the cause. Because, I mean, I, something like... Clay Revenant and Transmogrant Altar, I think, is a poster child for this. I see these included in low curve decks. You know, you think you want Clay Revenant because, oh, I've got Bitter Reunions and I've got Scrapwork Mutt. So this is such a good thing to, you know, randomly, incidentally discard and then get it back later. And I've got Altar and I've got Junkyard Genius. So I want Sacrifice Fodder. Yeah, but you don't want a tapped one mana one two in your aggro decks. That's just not what you want. And you don't care about having something free to discard to your mutt. And you don't care about having this repeatable grindy thing with altar. You just want things that affect the board and push damage. And if you are the value version, you really want that one yes. too that, you know, can can grind with transmog and altar. But knowing which of those you are and which you want is really important. Yeah. And like, I think the unearthers, they're all great. Even if they're off color, like we said, this is a great home for splashing on earth. I, I think that could be, if, if you take one thing away from our hour-long rambling here, <laughs> it's that you're not <laughs> taking unearthed cards high enough, and you're not thinking about them as colorless as much as you should be. Yes, the unearthed cards are great, especially if you include, they're so easy, not easy, but with minor going out of your way, it is very easy to put whatever color of unearthed artifact you <laughs> want to put in a deck that cares about artifacts. Correct. And I think another thing I've seen with Red Black and... I'm curious if you felt this as well. It's sometimes easy without realizing it to end up in a deck that doesn't have enough creatures because there's so much good removal 
And then you also want like the cantripping artifacts as, you know, free things to sacrifice. So you can end up in a deck with like 11 or 12 creatures that's trying to be kind of aggressive, which is also a disaster. Like, yeah, you want a lot of removal, but a deck with four disfigures and two overwhelming remorses and three excavation explosions and an obliterating bolt, like that's also not a good recipe. Like it is possible, I think, in red black specifically to end up with too much removal and too many cards that do nothing and not enough creatures. I drafted this exact deck that you're talking about (laughs) because I was leaning so hard into the, oh, this is a set where I've never liked removal enough, can't possibly have a problem, blah, blah, blah. And someone in chat was like, what is this deck's game plan? And I was like, we're going to one for one and then we're going to assemble our engine, whatever. I think maybe I had exactly Altar and Clay Revenant. And I was like, we're going to make a bunch of Power Stones and this will be easy. We'll make a 3-3 every turn. But what happens when you are Oops All Removal is you are forced to fire that removal off no matter what the situation is. You're forced to disfigure an unearth creature. You're forced to overwhelming remorse some Argothian opportunist where you would much rather save that for an unearth creature or save that for a big bad threat. But because you have nothing to put on the board yourself, you have to spend your mana and you have to impact the board in some way. And so you end up having to spew off this removal. And then by the time the dust settles, you don't have the removal left to interact with the thing you need to. Right. And I think that's another way to get yourself in trouble. That would be another great example of, well, I have all these good cards. I have all these removal spells. Removal is supposed to be good. Why am I losing? Well, you don't have the right ratios of removal to the sacrifice outlets to the cards that you want to sacrifice. Yep. All right. Before we roll off here, I just we've talked about this a little bit, but I just want to update our stance on white or my personal stance on white. We were poo-pooing it as pretty hard in last place last week, and I do think it is moved up for me, not to the level of green and black and red, but closer to that than it is to blue. I think blue is pretty significantly the worst color unless you have rares. Like blue lets you do some sweet things, but I think in general, blue incentivizes you to not play to the board, Mm -hmm. which if you don't really understand the format deeply is an easy way to get yourself in trouble. I totally agree. I mean, we think about what does blue do in terms of affecting the board? Combat courier is great, but as a like, you know, two rectangles and value, it's not like actually trading with anything. It's more like a chump sack draw card activation. Air Marshal is very narrow. We already talked about the self mill creature as being very narrow. And then it's got what wing commando for three mana, like all of its creatures at common as you move up the curve aren't really doing the thing. So I agree with that. And then it's best cards like stern lesson, not board affecting. Correct. So you have to you know, have good knowledge of the format to make good use of Stern Lesson. And then Mightstone's animation is good and is a lot of board presence, but asks very specific things of you in deck building, which again, are not really what the format incentivizes you to do. So like, yes, you can do that, but I think is much easier to blow up in your face than some of the other strategies in the Jun colors or even in white where you're just playing board affecting cards. Right. Blue, I think is the most reliant color, not close on higher rarity cards. Yes. And so we've talked about how busted Scrapwork Cohort is. Airlift Chaplain, I think, has really gone up for me in the right deck with a lot of unearthed cards. And I think Phalanx Vanguard even as well. Just a one and a white, two, two Vigilance, fine card in the format, especially if you're going to be dumping some other artifacts in the battlefield. You play your Scrapwork Cohort, all of a sudden it's a four, two Vigilance. And I think Prison Sentence, as we talked about earlier, has moved up for me as well. So just want to shout out white. I don't think it's the worst color anymore. And I think much closer to red, black, and green than I initially would have given it credit for. I feel comfortable drafting white. A week ago, I thought drafting white was a disaster. And I feel very comfortable drafting and winning with white at this point. Unbelievable. (laughs) I've been abandoned on my own own Jund Island over here. No, I I agree. I mean, as much as I was making the joke and poo-pooing the stats for the, the top game in hand win rate commons, they are confounding to me in my current strategy, but you also cannot ignore them. That, that's the thing about cards that are rated well on 17 lands. They can't be ignored. There's a large enough sample size. They are performing well. And I think just finding the right home for them and, and realizing that they can pair with any color as long as you're being aggressive. And, and as long as you realize that, you know, you're not really caring about the rectangles and the power stones of the world. You still care about Unearth for sure. Every deck cares about Unearth. But I think that's how you make those cards their best. And I think knowing how good white is at playing with Unearth also makes something like Power Stone Engineer a lot more appealing. I think initially we were like, what are you doing with white's Power Stones? Well, you're playing some artifacts with Unearth and maybe they're, you know, Scrapwork Rager or whatever. Maybe they're Mishra's Juggernaut. But white loves Unearth cards of its own color or other colors as well. 
And I think that was not immediately apparent to me. I know that I am about to draft white in the day two arena open draft one. And I'm going to have no idea what to do just because of this whole talk of like, I'll be like, yeah, white sounds good. And I'm just going to get <laughs> it and be totally at sea. So thanks for that, Ben. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. Any parting deck building wisdom before we go here? I think it would just be all reiterating the things that we've said. I think, again, just take unearth cards higher, please. And don't misconstrue mid-range as half aggro, half control. Yeah, mid-range is definitely a deck that is a scotch or two slower than aggro, but still has its own clear plan. It's not aggro cards in a deck that is not very aggressive. Think of it as a a deck that allows you to curve out if the game dictates that or allows you to play defense, like a a deck that plays both offense and defense well. I think that would be a better way to frame mid-range. It's choosing a car in a racing game. It gets just like the three out of five star stats down the board for acceleration, turning, whatever, right? It just does everything above average, but neither thing, it's not doing anything like super duper well. It's not like, oops, all acceleration and it's turning is terrible. Does them both pretty well. Love it. And I think my parting thought is that, you know, if DMU taught you how to draft, I think Brothers War is going to teach you how to deck build. I think all of those same interesting decisions are in the deck building portion this time around than they were in the draft portion in DMU. Preach. All right. And on that note, thank you as always to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you to TCG Player for sponsoring this podcast. If you are heading over there for any and all purchases or to sign up for a TCG Player subscription, please navigate yourself via our affiliate link at lordsoflimited.com slash TCG Player. You can check us out streaming or you can check Ben out playing on his phone. I'm at twitch.tv <laughs> slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks everybody. See you later. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.